What is up? Welcome to Base Camp, a climbing magazine podcast. Kevin Riley here. So glad you could join us because we got a great episode for you. It's the photo annual preview. First, I sit down with Matt Samet, Climbing Magazine's editor-in-chief, and we talk about the photo annual. We also talk about his online article, Crusty Corner, The Red Tag Dilemma. If you haven't already read it, I highly encourage you to go to climbing.com and check it out. It's a great article. Then I sit down and speak with Levi Harrell, an up-and-coming pro-climbing photographer. We talk about the highs and lows of being a pro photographer in such a crowded marketplace. We talk about photo editing and equipment and social media. He has a couple tips and tricks for those budding photographers out there. And he also tells me about how he was recently in China on assignment, uh, was able to climb a trad route, but unfortunately fell, pulled a couple pieces, decked, split his head open. Kind of a scary story, but a good story nonetheless. So we're going to get to those. But first, I kind of want to delve into the upcoming August-September photo annual. It goes on sale July 17th. We have an exclusive feature from Sunny Trotter. It's called Pineapple Express, inside the first descent of El Capitan's newest all-free grade 6 513. Words are by Sunny Trotter, photos by Austin Sidak. One image that really caught my eye is of Sonny on the black roof. He's high up on El Capitan. He's got a high right heel hook. He's got his right arm crossed over his left. It's a super steep pitch. He's so exposed, just so, so far above the valley below him. Kind of makes my hand sweat just looking at it. It's a great feature. You only can get it in Climbing Magazine, so make sure you check that out. And then also, obviously, it's a photo annual, so we have the best climbing photography from some of the best climbing photographers in the industry. We got Andy Wickstrom, Francois Lebeau, Irene Yi, Andrew Burr, and Levi Harrell, Really inspiring photography from around the world. You're going to love it. And I also wanted to bring up the faces department. So James Lucas interviewed Josh Warden, an all-around climber from Estes Park, kind of a low-key guy. But they talk about hard climbing, the risks in alpinism, social media, and balancing life as a father and a pro climber. It's a great issue. Make sure you get yourself a copy. Again, that goes on sale July 17th. All right, we're going to get to the interviews But first, a word from our sponsor. Tired of the same old lifestyle climbing shoe? Time to check out the Evolve Rebel, winner of Climbing's Editor's Choice Award. It has a lightweight feel and water-repellent upper, a cushioned midsole coupled with a rubber toe cap for durability, and heel-side reinforcement for stability. But don't take my word for it. Hear what these climbers have to say. And have you seen the new Evolve Rebel? I have, yeah. What do you think? They're sick. I love them. They look cool. They look steezy for sure. <laughs> I just got a pair in the mail, yeah. What do you think? I love them. I think they're awesome. They're like, you know, crack of the club type deal. Have you seen the new Evolve Rebel? Uh, no, not yet. They look, oh, they're light. These are nice. Yeah, looks pretty good. Like, solid, comfortable, all-day wearing shoe. The Evolve Rebel, available now at REI and REI.com. All right, here with Matt Samet for the photo annual preview. But before we talk about the photo annual, Matt, I want to talk to you about your column, Crusty Corner, okay. that you wrote recently about the red tag dilemma. Mm-hmm. It's a really strong article, really entertaining. I'd love to just get your take on 
how the whole situation with that red tag impacted how you feel about red tagging in general? Um, well, I, I guess for the uninitiated, probably first I would just explain the, the process of red tagging because a lot of people don't put up roots. Uh-huh. So they might not be familiar with it. Or maybe they've seen those tags on first bolts of crags. I mean, like, what does that mean? But, you know, traditionally, the idea was that if you took the time to bolt, equip, clean a sport route, while you were actively trying it, you would ask the rest of the community to stay off. And so mm-hmm. the way you would let other people know you were working on it was a red tag. You can put it there for that reason. You can also put it there because maybe you're not done bolting or maybe you've put in glue ins and the glue needs to dry or you haven't cleaned all the loose rock off yet. So there's a couple couple purposes for the red tag. Um, and they've been around, I mean, I've been sport climbing since the late 80s and I do kind of remember seeing them then. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, I'm trying to think of where the first one I saw was maybe like in New Mexico at like Coach de Mesa. Like my friend Jean was trying this I don't know if he had it red tagged. He was trying the only 513 at Coach Mesa. He might not have had a red tag. But the, at that point, the climbing community was so small, everyone knew that it was Jones' route and he was trying it. But it pretty much originated in the sport climbing community? As far as say, I or? know, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know, you know. I don't know the exact history of the red tag. I mean, it's interesting that it's red, right? Because we have the term red point, uh-huh. which started in the Frankenjur with Kurt Albert, you know, drawing a, a red circle below, I think... I don't know if he was, he originally drew the circles, but he would fill in the circles with red once he'd freed a root. So maybe someone's like, oh, red's the color, and now you put the tag on. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, were there red tag trad roots? I don't know. How would you do that? You could place the first piece, I guess, and hang a tag on it, but then someone could just come along and steal your piece and be <laughs> yeah. out of piece. So it doesn't seem like uh-huh. uh, it would have been very effective. But the first time I became familiar with it was for sure through sport climbing. Mm-hmm. Boulder problem, same thing. How do you red tag a boulder problem? I don't know. And you were pretty deep into the whole rifle uh, revolution or community. Mm-hmm. Um, was it pretty prevalent at rifle as well to red tag routes? It was. That's probably where I threw on my first red tag. I mean, what I remember about rifle in the early days is like my first visit to rifle, we walked into the canyon. There were maybe two or three walls with established climbs, mm-hmm. like the Ruckman wall, the wasteland, and there were maybe a couple routes in and around the project wall. So there wasn't a lot that had been established. And there was just all this rock and it was clearly very good and very steep and it was going to hold all these amazing sport climbs. Um, so, you know, people were, there are a lot of people who are kind of in on rifle early and a lot of people would, they might bolt a whole route and be working it and red tag it. But another thing that a lot of us did, myself included, was you'd just be like, oh, there's the king line on the wall. I'm going to run up and put in, it's really hard to get around to the top at rifle. So a lot of routes were bolted ground up. So you would just have someone through your quick belay and you'd drill like one or two or three bolts at the base. And then you just put a red tag on the first one mm-hmm. in order to say, oh, I was here first. This is going to be my route. So there was a couple of routes. I did that on Roadside Profit at the Bauhaus wall. I think we maybe started up some things at the project wall and, and drilled ground up. Yeah, but it was very rampant at Rifle in the early mm-hmm. days. And I remember someone around Boulder, too. I mean, probably was in other areas as well where people were active, like Smith Rock and stuff like that. Um yeah, but I do remember like seeing tags and some were on routes that were actively being worked and some were just on routes that it's kind of all but been abandoned. You know, at a certain point it, it did start to get kind of ridiculous. It was like there's just tags everywhere and you don't see anyone trying the route. There's no chalk on it. And you're like, well, what the hell is going on here? It's like anyone going to try this? Can I try it? You know, so questions started to arise. Yeah. And it was an accepted practice. Was it controversial? Were there people anti-red tagging at that point? 
you know, I don't know that anyone ever explicitly was, but again, the community was so small at that point that you uh-huh. kind of knew everyone. So people would generally know like who had bolted and, and who had tagged. I mean, were they always respected? No, definitely not. There were instances of, of tag poaching at, at rifle. Um, you know, the, 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 the most blatant one I can think of was the anti-fill, which is a really famous route on the anti-fill wall. Um, you know, like Pete Zoller and Philip Benningfield had kind of put a lot into it. Like Philip had broken his arm trying to bolt the route because he was using a quarter-inch aid bolt down low to get up to where he thought the actual bolt would go. The bolt broke. He fell, broke his arm. You know, so that happened early on. Those And, and everyone really coveted that line because it was really beautiful. So there, people were always asking him, when are you guys going to finish that? When are you guys going to finish that? So they finally got the thing bolted and um, stopped it. They had an anchor in, I think, at, at 25 meters because we didn't really have long ropes back then. It's since been extended. But they had mm-hmm. it red tagged, and they were actively working it. And this was summer of, I don't know, 93 or something like that, a long time ago. And some visiting climbers came in, and, and a European climber who was climbing very well at the time and who was, who was like a World Cup climber just hopped on it and flashed it or was in the, I think in the process of flashing it. <laughs> yeah. And my friend Scott happened to be like walking around the canyon on a rest day and he walked over there and he's like, hey, what are you doing? That's a red tag. And, and the climber's up at the anchor and he just kind of laughed and I think he jumped off going to the anchors. He's like, okay, fine. Uh-huh. So there were instances like that. And, you know, other instances of people kind of taking over other people's projects because they weren't finishing them quickly enough. Um, you know, like Simply Red on the project wall, which is another famous route, was only partially bolted and the equipper Eric Fedora was trying the bottom but he didn't finish equipping it so Philip Benningfield came along and like basically finished equipping it to 25 meters put in an anchor I don't know why I don't even know that Philip necessarily tried it that much after that Uh I think he said he was just frustrated with Eric not finishing bolting it and then it was eventually Scott Franklin who freed it but I do believe that that was red tagged and I don't I don't I think it was sort of I don't know whether it was climbed against Eric's wishes or not. I wasn't there when that all went down. But, you know, eventually it was like Eric started the route, Phil finished bolting it, Scott freed it. Mm-hmm. So you'd have these sort of gray areas, too, where you'd have a lot of different parties kind of converging on a climb, and it eventually would get done. So yeah. It was, um, yeah, it was confusing, mm-hmm. in a word. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't know. How do you feel about red tagging? You know, I actually, I'm pro red tagging. I feel like if you put in the time, you put in the effort, you put in the money, mm-hmm. like you should have it. I also think if you don't think you're going to get it in a certain amount of time, at a certain point, you should just give up. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the same way I feel about like hang dogging. Like, I don't want to sit on a route just like going bolt to bolt over and over again. At a certain point, I'm saying, dirt me. Right. <laughs> you know, just like get me down. Like this Let's, isn't happening. And let someone else climb. Yeah. You know, let my belay partner climb. I don't want to sit on a route for an hour. Yeah. At the same time, I wouldn't want to try a route for years just keeping it to myself, just waiting for it. It seems a bit selfish to me. Yeah, I suppose it could be. I mean, at the same time, too, you'd probably also get bored. You'd just be like, I'm tired of going to the same climb <laughs> yeah. over. Like someone else come do it because I'm over it. Uh-huh. Yeah, I don't know. What about from the perspective, though, of people who come in and kind of like seagulls kind of wait for red, you know what I mean? I mean, that's the one thing I think that I tried to point out in that article I wrote. There's like red tags, they're kind of magnets for people. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because the route I wrote about is at this cliff where there's, I don't know, 20 other climbs and they're all plenty hard and they have chain draws. But this one, because it had a red tag, had become sort of this unique object of fascination 
you know, and it might not be any better or worse than the other routes. I mean, it's a good climb, mm -hmm. but it's something, there's something about the red tag, I think that... Well, do you think it's not about the red tag, but it's more about getting your name attached to a route and getting your name in a guidebook? Could very well be. Yeah. <laughs> I think there's like, a lot of ego involved, maybe. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think that's the point I was trying to make in the article, is that I hadn't really done much self-examination about why I hung red tags, and what it means to me to do a first ascent. I mean, mm -hmm. I don't really care... Like I post first ascents on Mountain Project. I don't use my real name. I don't really care if my name's in a guidebook. I just put up roots because I like putting up roots. Yeah. I don't care really at all. There's been multiple roots that I've bolted, cleaned, put a lot into, and just left and other people did them. Like mm -hmm. Roadside Profit at Rifle or Don't Trust Whitey or some of the other stuff. I was just like, I don't know, I'm just not interested anymore. Other people came along and finished them. Um Yeah, but in this case, I don't know, it was interesting because it it wasn't my route. Uh, my friend Dave Montgomery had bolted it. Tried this it for, was Big Papa, the yeah, one Big that you wrote about. Yeah, it's at Staunton State Park in the South Platte, um, southwest of here. And he tried it um, and was doing well on it and then was struggling with one move. And I think at a certain point was sort of bringing other people to try it with them. Mm -hmm. And I tried it with them some. And then last fall, he decided he was kind of over it. He was starting grad school. He has a, you know, a little kid, you know, they were just buying a new house. Like, I think it was like the last thing he wanted was this project on his plate. And the wall had also become very popular. So I think a lot of people were asking him about it. There's just sort of all this drama around it. And I think he's just like, fuck it, I'm over it. You know, so he opened it up and I was trying it some last fall, but he kept the tag on for me because he knew I was trying it. I didn't really care about the first ascent per se. It's just a really busy wall. And there can be like rope bags six or seven deep on some of the popular routes. And I was like, well, if I'm going to do this thing also, because you could start on the same route and link into another route. And it's like a 12 plus link up that would probably be very popular. It would help to have the red tag on. Mm -hmm. So that's why the tags died on. But then I, I didn't get last fall. I trained hard all, all winter. What were you doing to train? Uh, so I worked with Nina Williams to get a training plan that had a lot of moonboarding weighted pull-ups, max hangs, and then I added in some weightlifting. And then later, to do better with uh, power endurance, I did four-by-fours and doubles at the gym. Mm -hmm. And it, it helped. Like, my first day back on the route this spring, I almost did it. And then I, I, I got it my second day. But, like, my first day back, as I wrote about in the article, it was a busy day at Staunton. It was probably one of the first warm weekends. Um, you know, I went over, kind of got my rope and draws in it. And like, I think immediately a climber came up, was like, what's up with that red tag? And I was just like, oh man, <laughs> yeah. you know, I was like, this thing is such a magnet. And I was kind of grumpy and it definitely was not my best because I was just sort of like, I don't know. I just sort of assumed I've been training all winter. This tags on, like, I, I, I just sort of have this clear lane in front of me where mm -hmm. I can do this route. Um, and at that point, I think David left the tag on, so it was still sort of word of mouth. But I think the word had got out that it was an open project. So, um, you know, it's sort of like it's red tagged. You can ask Dave Montgomery about it. Um, it's not really my route. Um, you know, and I didn't I didn't say not to try it per se, but I don't think I was as friendly as I should have been. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I just, I, you know, I'm just thinking about it. Yeah. But I think a lot of that was because I had these preconceived ideas over what the red tag means. That is sort of your possession to try until you're done trying it. Even though uh -huh. it wasn't even really my red tag, you know, I just sort of had this notion in my head that oh, it's 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 all about me trying this route. But by proxy, it was given to you, kind of. But other people, Dave had given the green light to other people too. Oh, okay. I didn't know if this guy knew Dave or not, 
I had never seen him in my life. Mm-hmm. It turns out his name's Tom. He's a strong climber from Denver. Super nice guy. And then another guy, a, a friend of mine, Matt, came up and, and was like, so what's, what's up with that tech? And I was like, you know, I talked to him. And he's like, oh, I talked to Dave about it, too. He said I could get on it. I was like, I was like, cool. I'm probably a day or two from sending it. Like, you know, I didn't tell him not to get on it. But again, <laughs> yeah. I was sort of like hinting, like, yeah. maybe. Give me maybe, a week. Give me, yeah, give me a week. Give me a little breathing room. Um but those ended up; those guys ended up getting on it that day anyway, and they were respectful and brushed. And you know, I gave them my beta, and but it was just funny. They got on that day. I gave four burns that day. Almost did it, didn't, and then came back the following weekend. It was really cold, wet, shitty Saturday. There's no one up there, and we got up there early, and like those two guys were already there, warming up. So clearly, they they wanted to do the route as well. So we all we all tried it that day, and then. Um, you know, it, it was cold and nasty and Tom came close on a burn and got up high and then I did it the time after him and the rock mm-hmm. was wet because it had been raining. Yeah, and there was no one there that day, which was nice. I don't know. I'm just trying to think. I mean, it was nice to pull that tag off. Yeah. You know, it was a good feeling. I will say that. Like, because so much meaning had become attached to that tag, either by me or by other people, and maybe a lot of it was in my own head, it was nice to take it off. Like, Dave's whole goal was to open that route up to the community but he knew I was trying it, so it was this weird gray area where he was kind of stuck until I was finished, but it wasn't really my route, so I was kind of stuck too. And I didn't really want to be the root sheriff telling people not to get on it while I was still trying it, even though I think in my heart of hearts that's what I felt. Mm-hmm. Just because I was... I mean, I guess that's what I tried to convey in the article, that, oh, actually, I think my motivations here are probably just as selfish as the next guy. Like, I'm not, I'm not Mother Teresa, you know? So ultimately did the experience change your viewpoint on red tagging or anything like that or any of the feedback from the community since you did post about it on social media? I don't know. I mean, most of the responses, I think, were along the lines of how you feel that if the person's actively working a route, they should have time to do it. Uh-huh. Most people said one or two years, I think, which is yeah. reasonable. And then, yeah, like you said, like, if it's just not happening, open it, open it up. I I think that's fair. I mean, I think for me, like I have a couple of things I'm going to bolt this fall um, around Boulder and the flat irons that I know will be hard for me that are they're, they're expensive. Like we're using half inch stainless steel hardware. Mm-hmm. They're long routes. We have to go through all this paperwork to do it because it's in a per- permitted area and open space in mountain parks. So I'm sure I'll probably slap a tag on because I always do. Um, will I care if I walk up to the crag and see other people on there? I, I, I don't know. You know, I don't know that I'm any more enlightened having gone through yeah. this experience, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, I, if it's, let me put it this way. If I slapped a tag on there and I wasn't up there working them, then people should have at it. But if mm-hmm. I slap a tag on and I'm trying those routes and then people are up there, you know, I guess I wish that they would reconsider is how I'd put it. You know, I mean, nobody owns the rock and, and I think... You know, it was it was Matt Sapicha from the Bad Beta Cut podcast who who posted the one comment who's like, if you're red tagging a route, even if you're actively working it and you don't want other people on it, then you need to reexamine your motivations. And I do think he has a point. I just don't know that I'm the big enough human being to actually reexamine my motivations and say, yeah, go ahead and get on that route that I just spent two hundred dollars on and you know two days in a harness cleaning. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I always am happy to share projects with maybe maybe the maybe the the difference is that, you know, it's always fun to share projects with a friend who's helping you put up the route mm-hmm. or other friends who come up there to belay you and support you and try it. But if you come up the hill and there's some rando on there, <clears throat> even though they know what a red tag is. Yeah, I don't know. How do you work it out? I mean, what would you do? Well, 
I'm no like a shining example of a good, good, uh, human being, human being, (laughs) good Samaritan. I don't know. I tend to get pissed off at people at the crag. I mean, I was just talking to you earlier about some people that were on my ass while climbing the barb and like how that upset me. Right. And frankly, that was just like a matter of space, you know, (laughs) like, Mm -hmm. you know, I'd be upset, you know, especially if. They, you know, weren't showing the respect after learning about it. You know, I guess right. it's all about, like, what they knew coming into it. You know, do they know what a red, red tag is? Right. You know, do they know how long this route has been up? Mm-hmm. If you've been trying it or not? Or are they just totally oblivious and from out of town? Right. Are they from out of town? Or do they, are they from town and they know that the route's a project, but they want to do it anyway? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the one thing I struggle to understand is that in around... Colorado where there's tens of thousands of rock climbs like why is the one with the red tag that much more interesting Mm -hmm. you know that's what I've never gotten it's like I'll just try something else like until that tags off one way or the other Mm -hmm. I mean that's how I felt but um yeah I don't know I think you're right I don't know it's all about style right like that's what climbing to me is about not necessarily how hard you're climbing and stuff like that but like the way in which you climb and Mm -hmm present yourself to the rock or to the community and those around you right you know whenever i see climbers who have really good etiquette stuff like that i'm like whoa that's awesome those are great people Mm -hmm. and when i don't i just get super pissed and grumpy and passive aggressive (laughs) (laughs) i'd love to see that side of you that'd be exciting yeah i mean i don't know none of us are the buddha you know when we're out climbing it's hard to set your ego aside i think maybe that's what i learned from this article that I actually have probably a much bigger ego than I thought I did mm-hmm. and that it's going to be an ongoing work t- to set it aside. Like, do I have enough humility to like bolt a root, clean it, be trying it and come up the hill and see someone trying it and be like, cool. Yeah. Maybe, One day. Know, maybe someday. I don't know. Yeah, I'm, I'm working <laughs> on it, but you know, at least, at least, at least the red tag dilemma, like the article, and at least thinking about it, at least it's a chance for some self-examination. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's what a lot of people got out of it, at least from the comments I was reading. Yeah, cool. So let's talk about the photo annual. Uh-huh. Um, so obviously there's a lot of great photos in here, but even before that, there's a really cool article about uh, Sonny Trotter mm-hmm. and his route Pineapple Express. Would just love to, you know, talk to you about like how that all came about, how long you've been working with Sonny on mm-hmm. the article. Yeah, this was cool. Sonny, I mean, you know, it hit the news last fall that he'd done this new in a day free ascent on El Cap. It was a variation to El Nino um, that eliminated the the man powered rappel, which is the A0 rappel. I'm not sure which pitch it is. I think it's up, up near Big Sur Ledge. But, you know, when the Huber brothers did it, there was 13 CA0 because there was just one blank section they couldn't find a way mm-hmm. around. So I think it was Thomas held onto a jug while he's clipped to a belay. His brother repelled off his harness to like descend, and then they traversed left into. The, <laughs> is it the black dihedral? I think. Um, yeah. So you know, for years I think Sonny had looked at that part of the wall and kind of done some forays on El Nino. Him and Alex Honnold originally started. I think Sonny started with a couple other partners, but then it was sort of him and Alex Honnold got invested in it. Um, and then eventually through a lot of, I mean, a lot of work, like an impressive amount of work, like repelling in from the top, 
you know, down aiding, aiding sideways, putting in directionals. They they found a free line around that. That's three new pitches. So he, him and Alex got all that bolted. And, and the cool thing too, I think, is that the photographer, um, Austin Sidak, who's also, you know, a, a Valley local and, and a big wall, big wall badass was there the whole time. So he documented the, this thing from start to finish, which is pretty unique. Like, you know, a lot of times, like, the photographer won't come in until the, the climber's ready to sort of pull the trigger on his scent. Mm-hmm. But he was, he was there, you know, helping them fix the ropes and obviously trying to get in position himself, you know. So he was part of the process the whole time. So we had this unique opportunity to have storytelling about this route from start to finish. Um, you know, Sonny's a great writer. He's a super funny guy, you know, really humble, but very talented climber. I've worked with him before, and he reached out. He's like, you know, you want to feature on this first ascent? I'm like, yeah, let's do it. Like, this will be cool. Like, I've always had fun working with Sonny. Um, yeah, so we worked on that for a few months, and I don't know. I mean, I'm sure people will be psyched on the result. I know I was. I think it's a 12 or 14 page feature. Uh-huh. Really tried to blow out the photos, go big, show lots of photos of the new crux pitches. It's a nice long narrative article with a lot of historical nods to the history of that part of the wall, going back to the North America wall. You know, the first ascent by chenard and frost and and royal robbins and and chuck pratt you know i mean one of the big el cap roots because of the style in which these guys did it you know just casting off uh, on uh overhanging loose terrain with no, with no fixed lines so just really cool yeah historical rich feature kind of feels like in the old school vein of climbing magazine mm-hmm. yeah this year we decided to just do something a little different. Last year we just sort of picked the best photos that come in mm-hmm. or just reached out to photographers to send us your best stuff. This year we decided to feature, I think it was five different photographers yeah, and just ask them for, for their best work. I just sort of in the, you know, the idea that each gallery would sort of have its own voice, its own vision, um, that there'd be sort of more cohesion too, instead of like, here's a bunch of images that we kind of randomly put together. Yeah. Um, yeah, but typically, you know, it's James Lucas does a lot of the associate editors, a lot of work on the photo front. I set some stuff aside, but because we don't have a photo editor, a lot of how we select stuff is sort of a communal process. Like Mm -hmm. we just flag the photos we like the best and where there's overlap and agreements, we'll be like, cool, let's, let's run that shot. You know, but this year we have Irene Yee, Francois Lebeau, Andrew Burr, Andy Wickstrom and Levi Harrell. Um, all people who've been just killing it with great photos, very active, have a wide sort of archive of of images. So our goal was to also show as much, you know, diversity as we can to diversity with climbers, diversity of areas, diversity of styles and all that. Um, yeah. So hopefully, hopefully people like it. Well, cool, Matt. I uh, look forward to reading through the entire issue. It goes on sale July 17th. Mm-hmm. So if you're listening to this, it's probably already on newsstands. Um, but yeah, thanks for stopping by. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So that was our chat with Matt Samet. And after this short message from the Access Fund, we'll be speaking with Levi Harrell. So stick around. You kind of get up in those finger slots and you grab that horn with your right and grab this that thing. yeah, and yeah. grab that left edge and then you surf to that arete with your left hand. As climbers, it's important that we all do our part to protect the climbing areas we love and to be good stewards of the land. Recently, Matt Salmon and I went climbing with the new executive director of the Access Fund, Chris Winter. I got to ask him a couple questions. So what are some of the biggest threats that we're facing right now? Well, as climbing is growing so quickly, uh, some of our climbing areas, our more popular climbing areas, are being loved to death from overuse. Public lands are political football right now. Land managers are dealing with shrinking budgets. 
and a lot of the hardware is aging. So we're at this pivotal moment where the sport's growing quickly, but we have a lot of these threats that we have to get our arms around. And what can climbers do to get involved? The best thing they can do is to support the Access Fund and support their local climbing organization. So join the groups that are really speaking up and uh, trying to do the good work on the ground for climbers. And get involved. Show up for stewardship days, uh, trail days, and learn how to talk to your land managers about climbing. Awesome, awesome. Well, let's try to take down this monkey bar traverse, shall we? Yeah, that sounds great. Become a member and get involved at accessfund.org. So I'm here with Levi Harrell, I believe is how you pronounce correct, it. Correct, correct. And we're talking to you because you're one of the featured photographers in our photo annual. We did it a little bit differently. I mean, you know, Matt decided to, instead of just uh, putting in a ton of photos and um, having it a mishmash, he basically categorized it by photographers. So you're one of the featured photographers. And um, mm-hmm. before we actually get started, uh, your photos that are featured, and there's two nighttime shots. Yeah. Which are really cool. And I, I was do. wondering, did you do that by like doing a double exposure? How did you capture those nighttime shots? No, it's actually a single exposure. And this was one of the trickiest shots I've ever taken in my life because it required the climber to line up with the Milky Way And have enough natural light from the moon or from an external source like a flash to light up the whole scene. And so it was really complicated lighting and rigging the tripod up with the camera in the right spot to capture this all. Uh, Because the Milky Way rotates Mm -hmm. as we go through the seasons, uh, you really had to plan out these shots in advance. So there's one shot from Escalante in there of Jenny Fisher climbing. Mm -hmm. And that was a shot where it was thought of in advance and planned out for months before we went and actually shot it just because we had to have the right conditions for everything. And then once you're there, you're just praying that you get clear skies on the night that you need to shoot. Yeah. And tell me a little bit about that process from cradle to grave. Like how did you come up with this, the inspiration to shoot this and then go through the plan? So I originally was into landscape photography, fine art prints. Uh, and I would go up and I would summit mountains to get amazing shots of the stars, to get away from noise pollution. Mm -hmm. And as my adventure career started taking off, I started thinking about how I could mix these two aspects of my life that I really enjoyed. And I noticed that there wasn't a whole lot of media out there that was covering this nighttime photography, climbing, or just adventure lifestyle. Yeah. And so I was living in New Zealand at the time, which is known for extremely clear skies. And I Uh went out a couple times with friends, shot some bouldering shots, and thought how amazing it would be if you could get a roped climber to line up with mm-hmm. the stars behind it. And so from that process on, it was, you know, going to Vitawu and trying to shoot it with Chris Schulte and then going with Jenny and trying to shoot it there, going to Rocky Mountain National Park and shooting some bouldering, just really experimenting with the light and what the Milky Way would allow me to capture mm-hmm. uh, until it kind of came to fruition and what you're seeing in the photo annual. Okay. And you mentioned, you know, shooting with Chris Schulte and Jenny. Let's talk about how you connect with pro climbers to make all this happen. Because, you know, one half of it is you getting out there with a camera, but there's this other half of actually coordinating with a pro climber. Man, uh, the best thing that ever happened for my climbing career and my photography career was going to movement gym in Boulder. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Just being around pro climbers. And showing that you were actually a part of this culture. You weren't just somebody who was here to try and make a quick buck. You were here because you were a lifer. You were someone who was invested in the community. And then it was going to every single Kraken Classic, going to every single climbing event, shaking as many hands as possible, and just getting your face out in front of these people. Because these pro climbers get approached by photographers a lot. Yeah. And so it's really getting your face in front of them and saying like, hey, you know, I'm... 
I'm not here just to shoot you. I'm here to shoot everybody. You know, I'm here to try and make this my lifestyle. I'm trying to get paid doing this for a living. Mm-hmm. And that really went a long way with a lot of these climbers. And do you plan like an entire trip with them or will you just meet up with them for a day or two? Uh, it depends on the scenario. Uh, some of the stuff I went on full expeditions with. I went to mm-hmm. China recently and that yeah. was a three-week expedition that I was there for the duration of. And then other times they say, hey, you know, I'm in you know Boulder Canyon for the day. If you'd be psyched, I'd love to get some shots on this. Uh-huh. And I, you know, research it a bit and see what I can do and see if my schedule lines up with theirs. So you mentioned earlier, like how you got into photography, mm-hmm. but it wasn't in the outdoor world. Like how did you get inspired to be a photographer? So originally in high school, uh, I was a part of this program called HTV, Hillcrest Television. And we won uh, about 10 to 15 national awards for broadcast journalism. Uh-huh. So that was my original entry point. It was I started with video, uh-huh. uh, producing TV shows for our high school, stuff like that. Got some national acclaim doing that. And I just really decided to transition into still photography because I was traveling full time and it was just so much hassle to put out video and it was hard to do by yourself. And so Mm -hmm. I transitioned into still photography. And while I was backpacking around, I would trade photos in exchange for accommodation in hostels and inns and lodges and people's houses. And that's how I paid my travel expenses to get across the world. And that just kind of blossomed into me starting into more of the adventure side of things. Did you have mentors or photographers that you looked up to at that point? Oh, for sure. I I mean, still to this day, there's guys that are just like, oh man, that's that's the guy. Like Jimmy yeah. Chan has always been uh-huh. that guy. He does all the coolest stuff and he's just as strong as a climber and as an alpinist as he is a photographer, which I think is really, really important. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the CRISPR cards of the world, guys like that, and even like fine art photographers, there's so many... So many guys out there that do amazing, amazing work that are just in a different genre than what we normally see. Mm-hmm. And are you able to make it and support yourself as a full-time photographer or do you have another side job? So I have a side job now. I tried doing the whole dirt bag and photography thing and it just became <laughs> too much of a hassle. It was, it was counterproductive to the point of I couldn't afford to go anywhere to mm-hmm. shoot these things. And then the money that I did make off of my trips would go straight back into just dirt bagging and like existing. Uh-huh. Uh, so I ended up picking up a part-time job. I bust tables like three days a week now just yeah. so I can cover rent and then have a little space where I can go edit and like have my own zone instead of having to like go to coffee shops every day and like drink six cups of coffee to use their space. Yeah, the restaurant business seems to be a popular uh, career path or side job for photographers. We were just talking about as we were making some coffee, how like Andy Mann and mm-hmm. um, Keith Lazinski, they were like worked for a catering company here on the front range like yeah. when they weren't shooting just to support themselves. And just like you said, to like send yourself on trips and give you that money to get to the places exactly. you can take the shots and sell them later. Yeah. I mean, you almost have to just because unless you've just got this amazing, you know, network, you've got to have some type of, you know, financial income while Mm -hmm. you're grinding and while you're struggling before you make that, you know, big payday or before you make that big expedition happen. Yeah. So let's uh, change gears here a little bit. Can we talk about social media versus print media? For sure. I'd love to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So another one of the photographers that's featured in here is Irene Yi. Mm -hmm. She's a good friend of mine, but she's definitely made it in the social world and social media. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in the old days, you know, I'm a little bit older, but like, you know, the Tim Kempels, the Lazinski's, the Andy mm-hmm. Mans, they were all 
about print media right and it's just changed so much so like how do you kind of see the dichotomy of social and print and you know how do you separate the two mediums right well it's really interesting that you asked that because uh, me and Irene had this conversation probably like two weeks ago. Me uh-huh. and Irene are good friends. We oh, cool. went to China together. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was there with a different party, but we linked up while we were there. Yeah, it's a really interesting subject because it used to be that the magazines were the gatekeepers to media. Totally. They were. They chose who was seen and who wasn't seen. And if you didn't fit a certain style or if you didn't fit a certain mold or if your photos didn't translate well to print because again this has got to go to paper Mm -hmm. uh then you're going to have issues you know you weren't going to get printed but now we've got this whole other medium that allows people to get big and to flourish and make a living out of photography that has nothing to do with magazines or even advertising for that matter it's well, I don't know if I would say it doesn't involve <laughs> yeah, advertising. Yeah, I, I think advertising still involved. Right. Yeah, it's definitely still involved. But the way that you go about advertising is you're advertising the photographer uh-huh. versus advertising like a shoe or mm-hmm. something like that. It's just you don't have to go the way of like you work for the magazine. You get recognized through the magazine. The brands pick you up because they see you working with the magazine. And now uh-huh. you shoot for the brand. Okay. Nowadays, you can go, well, I've got 50,000 followers and the brand approaches you and says, hey, will you wear these shoes or will you do this for us? Mm -hmm. You know, just because we know that you've got, you know, 8 million people that are going to see our stuff on a monthly basis, you know. And so it it changed the game as far as what was seen and how how things were advertised. Now you can be a 5'8 climber and be a pro climber, be Mm -hmm. a sponsored climber versus that not happening 10 years ago. And do you think that's a good thing, bad thing, or you indifferent? I think it's, I think it's a thing. Uh, I don't know if I would say good or bad. Yeah. It definitely has changed the game as mm-hmm. far as who gets sponsored and who doesn't. Yeah. I'll leave that up to everybody else to decide. Sure. Uh, yeah, it, it it's definitely challenging. I don't shoot very much for social media. Uh, okay. It's not what I'm... It's not what my style lends itself to. Uh-huh. Irene takes really great shots of people. Yeah. I take really great shots of landscapes. Okay. And that doesn't translate as well for social media. People don't seem to get as excited about that style of photography. Mm-hmm. Um, at least what I've seen. But again, Irene's got something that's totally unique. Yeah. Totally different than what me and, you know, Andy Mann are doing. Sure. And one thing Irene really excels at is photo editing. Big time. Which is something that used to be frowned upon. You know, the Tim Kempels right. of my day mm-hmm. um, just frowned upon any editing almost. Right. You know, they wanted like a raw image and right. the talent came through the shot. Right. And where Irene will spend hours mm-hmm. on a single photo. Do you spend a lot of time in the editing room or in Lightroom? Or... Most, most definitely. Yeah. Now, I like to do all my work pre-shutter. It's just yeah. a lot easier as far as editing is concerned. Okay. Um, and I mean, editing is such a rabbit hole, man. You can go way <laughs> down into that thing. And like, there's guys like uh, Jeff Scala who do amazing work in Photoshop. Mm-hmm. And they'll change the background, they'll change the lighting, and they'll completely change, you know, most aspects of an image. And it's, I mean, it's an art form. It's really cool what they're able to do. Uh, most of my stuff is pretty true to what you're seeing uh-huh. in real life. I think that's just what draws me in yeah. as, a, as a viewer. Irene stuff, you know, she does something completely different with saturation and with light. She mm-hmm. likes white skies, you know, whereas I do like a lot of greens and blues and try and bring in a lot of vibrance to my photos. Yeah. Um, 
So I, I touch editing a bit. Like I shoot all of my shots to be edited. Okay. There's never any shot where I'm like, yeah, completely raw is the way I'm going to send it in. I'm shooting that shot knowing it's going to be edited later. But yeah, I, I mean, I think every photographer touches on it. It's just the matter of like what's your artistic style and mm -hmm. how much you think is appropriate for the shot. And what type of equipment are you using these days? What's your bread and butter setup? So I shoot a pretty basic setup. I have a Sony a7R2, which okay. is... Yeah, tell me about that because I oh, don't know gear very man, well. Man, <laughs> love that camera. So it's an older camera now. They've since come out with the, the R3 and the, the regular a7 III. Mm -hmm. uh, but this camera has been like my workhorse. It's been through everything. Yeah. Uh, it's a really... Uh, it's, a, it's a mirrorless camera. Mm -hmm. And so it's not very thick, but it's 42 megapixels. Can you explain the difference between a mirrored and a mirrorless camera? For sure. Yeah. Yeah. So a mirrored camera has a reflective mirror. Just think like glass, like you would look into a regular mirror mm -hmm. that reflects what you're seeing uh, from the eyepiece into the lens. So you're looking actually at the natural light that you're seeing in the shot. A mirrorless has no reflective mirror. So your eyepiece, when you look through your camera, what you're seeing is a digital representation, kind of like if you're watching a TV screen. Okay. Yeah. So what that does, uh, you're not seeing the actual natural light of the scene. It's a video replica of what is seen by natural light. So what that means is you're not seeing the true colors of everything. It's a, like a digital interpretation of everything. Uh huh. But that's what your photo is going to come out as. Exactly. Anyways. It's you almost know, it's not a film camera. A truer sense of what the final right photo is going to look and like. It just it gives us more creative control over our photo pre-shutter okay so like there's there's phrases like chimping like looking at a photo after every time you take it mm -hmm. so you could see like if your light exposure is right but with the digital it does that in the camera for mm. me and so if i change my iso or if i change my shutter speed it's going to show me what that's going to look like before i take that shot okay. it just saves time nice you know especially with star photos yeah i have this ability called peaking where i can actually focus on the stars and actually light them up in red everything that's in focus will be in red so mm -hmm. then i don't have to worry about that shot being in focus before i take it okay yeah it helps so much all right and then maybe you can tell me something like about some lenses or any accessories that you use for sure i use all really low f-stop lenses uh -huh. cheaper lenses i'm not using like four thousand two thousand dollar lenses i have like a six hundred dollar lens and an eight hundred dollar lens uh, and by low f-stop you mean that you can shoot at lower light correct in more light into correct the, the aperture opens up further so again the lens is just like a digital eyeball mm -hmm. right and so if you've ever had your eyes dilated you know when you go in the doctor puts that liquid in and your eyes all of a sudden become super uh what's the word i'm looking for oh uh, just like sensitive yeah yeah, yeah. so when sensitive you, to the light right exactly yeah. so when you go to the doctor and they uh dilate your eyes mm -hmm. that's basically what i can do with that camera lens okay. i can open it up and make it super sensitive to light. Yeah. Uh, but I can do that while focusing it at the same time. Mm -hmm. So that allows for really cool options. Yeah. It just gives me more of a variety of what I can do, whether that's shooting in low light or if I want bokeh where it's like one thing's in focus and everything else is blurred out. So that's a style that I like shooting in. They're okay. also lend themselves to landscape stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, it just gives you a lot more option there. And I shoot wide angled. I shoot okay. a 16 mil fisheye lens. Yeah, that's pretty wide. And I shoot a 28 mil lens which is kind of like my go-to for panoramic shots. And these are like prime fixed lenses. Exactly. So you're 16 not... prime and then a 28 prime. And then I have a 70 to 200 2.8. Okay. Are, and that's but my I, zoom lens. I imagine like when you're dangling from a rope and stuff, you have to have the, the image that you want 
pretty finalized in your head. You're not jugging a rope and trying to like impromptu shoot a lot of these images. Correct. I mean, everything that I have is mapped out by the time I'm standing at the bottom of the cliff. Interesting. I can almost look at a climb and most climbing photographers can do the same or even climbers. Mm -hmm. You can go through the sequence and you're doing the beta in your head and you're miming the moves and you go, well, that's going to be crazy. Like, I don't know how I'm going to keep my feet on for that. Or man, that's going to be a crazy dyno or that's going to be a really cool move or I have to rose through and clip that. And so I do that as a climber and I go, well, if I'm going to get that clip move and I need to see his face, then I need to hang from here. And if my lens will shoot this much scenery, I know how close I need to be. So I have most of that mapped out by the time I get up there. Then it's just kind of trial and error and figuring out the exact spot that I want to be. Uh So a lot of climbers probably think that being a climbing photographer is pretty glorious (laughs) and just like, you know, the dream job. What do you think a misconception is out there about climbing photography that people just don't really get. The biggest misconception about climbing photography is that once you've taken the shot, your work is done. Mm -hmm. That I've taken the shot, awesome, North Face, pay me my money, (laughs) this shot's amazing. They don't see, you know, how you get from point A to point B of, I had to go edit, I had to go submit this photo, it got rejected, I gotta submit this photo again in six months. Mm -hmm. He likes it, but he's still not sure. He got fired, new guy gets hired, now I can sell my photo, mm-hmm. you know, just the, the amount of just waiting through, you know, meeting people and getting handshakes out of the way and then yeah. showing them the photo and seeing if it aligns with their marketing plan. And then, you know, you're trying to sell your photo of ice climbing, but it's the middle of summer. Yeah. So no one wants to buy it. You know, there's things like that, that people really just don't understand yet. And it, as far as like working with brands and stuff, because we talked a little bit about social media and working with climbing magazines out there. Right. But what's the marketplace like out there for brands? It's got to be just such cutthroat. It is. There's so many photographers out there. There's so many photographers. There's so many photographers that are willing to work for free. Yeah. And that's the one thing that that undercuts everyone in the industry. Because as soon as you're willing to get photos out there for free, Mm -hmm. that means the rest of us can't make any money, Mm -hmm. right? And if I'm a brand and I've got a budget for marketing and I can have a C plus photo for free versus an A minus photo and it's going to cost me X amount of dollars, I'm going to take the C plus every time (laughs) because that frees up so much more of my budget. That's an easy choice. Sure. And so that that really hurts the rest of our industry because everybody Uh just gets undercut all the time. Um, until the point where you're not even making your money back off of photos. Yeah. And I, you know, I was trying to make it as like a videographer mm-hmm. for a little bit and right. you end up like selling a video for like 500, maybe you're lucky and you sell it for 3000. Exactly. But that $3,000 isn't going to go that far when you have to travel halfway around the country. Right. You got to buy this equipment. You got to mm-hmm. buy a hard drive. You're spending hours and hours and hours editing. Yeah. And after you're done with it, even if you made a few thousand dollars, you're still underwater. Right. Well, it's like, what if I paid myself (laughs) minimum wage for my working time? Yeah. And then the cost of my gear, how much would it cost me to do this? And you look at that cost and you're like, there's no way anyone will ever pay me this much. (laughs) That's ridiculous. That's not, you know, it's not even close to what the industry charges. So that's the hardest part about it for sure. Do you get to climb as much as you want? being a photographer oh it's it's weird because i kind of switch brains like when i go out and take photos uh-huh. i do not bring my climbing shoes because i cannot do but both doesn't at the same that pain time. you to, like to go to these unbelievable places don't you want to be like i just want to take a couple laps oh i take a couple laps <laughs> but i like the beta is to do it when everybody else is resting that day yeah because then everybody can belay you too totally it's like sick now i've got all these people to belay me no one's climbing because they're all wrecked yeah and i can just run laps on all this easy stuff while they go climb the 
the real hard stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I try and keep my two brains separate as far as that goes because if I'm thinking about climbing when I'm trying to take photos, it hinders it. And if I'm trying to climb on a day that I'm taking photos, I just end up getting muddled somewhere yeah. in the middle and neither work out as well as I wish they would. Do you shoot outside of the outdoor industry, out, outside of you know landscapes or rock climbing? Not really. So yeah. the biggest thing that people always say is, oh, well, why don't you just shoot weddings if you're running out of money? It's like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, but it's like the golden handcuffs. <laughs> yeah. You know, like once you start shooting them, you can never stop because you get used to that lifestyle and making uh-huh. that much money. And it really just does not interest me whatsoever. Even portraiture. Yeah. It just doesn't excite me like the way getting outside and like getting stoked on the outdoors does. Uh-huh. Uh, and my work suffers because of it. Yeah. You know, if I wanted to go shoot weddings, I wouldn't be as good of an outdoor photographer. And I mm-hmm. don't think that I would be a great wedding photographer either. Cause I'm not excited to be there. You want someone who's going to be excited to take those shots. Yeah. Anything you're working towards right now? Any big goal, lofty goals out there? I, I don't want to make you pre-spray, but oh, no, that's I am right. going to ask you about yeah, it. Yeah. I've got a couple, couple projects that I'm pretty psyched about. I'm headed to the Tetons for a week and a half and then i'm finalizing a trip right now to go to the czech republic for 14 days okay go talk about some climbing over there pretty pretty stoked on that that'll be a climbing magazine article when it when it comes out probably for the spring of next year awesome yeah pretty excited and the other stuff it's kind of like the ink isn't dried yet so we'll see how it goes but uh (laughs) some pretty pretty exciting stuff coming up in the next you know year pretty excited about it Any advice or tips for those budding photographers out there? Get out and shoot. Just shoot. Every day, get out and shoot. And don't go shoot at noon. Yeah. (laughs) Don't don't shoot. Yeah, learn how to wake up early. Right. Shoot when it makes sense. Mm -hmm. Go out with someone who's willing to be patient and shoot different stuff. Do Uh not go out and shoot the same exact shot that you've seen on Instagram a hundred times. Yeah. The reason why the people are in this magazine, in this photo annual, every shot is unique yeah there's not a shot that you go oh yeah i could you know i've totally seen this about you a mean i can't times. just go walk out to yin and yang over at red rocks yeah, and shoot yin and yang yeah and exactly get it's into like, the magazine right exactly you know it's like <laughs> you gotta think that these editors if you wanted to get published these editors see thousands of photos daily yeah right and i bet you 60 percent of them are the same shots of the same climbs that they've seen for the mm-hmm. last 20 years bring something new to the table as a photographer shoot at night shoot in blue hour instead of golden hour shoot from a different angle shoot from you know on top of the climber instead of below the climber you know invest in a static line yeah that's that would be my number one advice i should have asked this earlier but when you're sending in photos do you send in photos that are raw or do you send in edited photos never always (laughs) edited photos always jpegs always at a low resolution never send in never send in your high resolution image at first why not? Please explain that. Okay. So when I send in an image, I send in an image at web resolution, uh-huh. right? One, because if your photo is too large, then your email's not going to send okay. first off, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. you, there's no point Two, they don't need an image that big. Uh-huh. If you are sending in a full res image, you are setting somebody up to take advantage of you Yeah. because now they can use that for print. Now uh-huh. they can use that to make a poster. They can use that for the banner of their videos send in a web resolution. See, this if, is the tip that budding you, photographers exactly, needed. If you were listening and you were sending in photos, <laughs> 2048 pixels wide, uh-huh. long edge. Yeah. That's what you need to be sending in. Okay. Nothing bigger than that. That's standard Facebook size. Mm-hmm. Anything bigger than that, they don't need. You're just sending in a preview. And it's that way if they like the photo, you can send in the high res later. Okay. 
Final question. Yeah. So I was talking to Matt Samet this morning. He said mm-hmm. you had this gnarly story from being in China. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I had the gnarliest you time could in maybe China. Just uh, delve into that. Indulge yeah. me here. So this was another rest day. I got to climb. Uh-huh. Uh, all the pro climbers, people I'm taking photo, photos of, aren't climbing at all. And so we went to this area called the Pillars and I first jumped on my like first off with ever, which was mm-hmm. absolutely awful. Yeah, that's a bad idea. Yeah, struggle with. bus. It's like a five ten <laughs> minus off with that I just like completely just was awful on. Um, it was like a Marlin cam and a big bro were the placements, and <laughs> it's like the first time ever. Jenny's like showing me, yeah, like but yeah, big bros are fine. You know, she's like hanging off of it. I'm like, this looks so sketchy. Like this <laughs> yeah. is awful. They're fine until they're not. Yeah, ex- exactly. Yeah, and so. Did that, got like three quarters of the way up and was like, this is awful. Bring me to the ground. Okay. And then went up on another thing, which was a, it's called far away corner. It's like a 10 plus 11 minus lie back crack, finger crack. And started going up that and placed a couple pieces. It's like, oh, you know, like, you know, like not going to work out. So I, I took, rested, I was kind of checking out the next sequence Started up again, got that piece to about my ankles, and fell and ripped out everything. What? Yeah, ripped oh. it all out. Just like fell, caught my heels on the far corner, hit uh. my hit my heels, hit my head, ripped Upside out two down. cams. Yeah, ripped out two cams. Ooh, it's a pretty long fall, I imagine. Decked. 30 why, why do you think those pieces ripped? Was it the rock quality, the placement? Uh, it depends Come who on. you ask. <laughs> it depends who you ask. Uh so in my opinion, I placed, I just placed bad pro. Okay. I placed pro at a bad angle and I placed it shallow. There you go. Well, yeah. at least you're owning up to it. A lot oh, of climbers yeah. don't own up to it. Well, I mean, come on. Like if, if your gear falls out, like if you fall and both two mm-hmm. pieces pop, nah, you know, yeah. like that's user error. And so <laughs> I ripped out two pieces and hit a tree on the way down, which saved my life. Okay. Actually, Like cut up, hit my arm pretty good. So you, um, you, did you deck then? Oh yeah, fully head first oh. deck. Yeah. Hit Were you my, wearing a helmet? No, I own a helmet now. Oh, I own a helmet now. What did. sucks is I brought a helmet on that trip. I just, oh, I had dude. never worn a helmet single pitch rock climbing like ever. Yeah. It was just like I was always fast and loose with. Okay. You know, with safety on that regard of like wearing a helmet. And okay. So, yeah. so you you fall, you rip mm-hmm. out multiple pieces. Yeah. Your your foot gets caught on the the arret, did you say? So it was a corner, it was a dihedral, it was a okay. corner. And so I was lie backing this finger crack going up it. And so when I fell, Your my heel back. yeah, I fell backwards and I caught my heels on the rock on the far edge. Okay. And it flipped me upside down, smacked my head, which knocked me out. And then Wait, 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 where you smacked your head on the rock before you hit the ground. Right. And then you, you hit a tree on the way down. Yeah. So I hit my head and so I fell like this and I came out from the rock a little bit Yeah. and I hit a tree, hit my ribs on the tree, dislocated rib, cracked two ribs. Oh, but you're unconscious at this point. Right. And then do, how did you fall on the ground? Did you so fall I, on your back, your neck, your head? What? Yeah. So I fell on my head. Oh, Super great. Uh, so I fell on gnarly. my head and like flipped. And so I landed like laying on my back. Okay. And I came to... And Irene, like how, with her, how long were you out for? Do you know? Five, six seconds, okay. maybe. Okay. So not super long, but yeah. I came to, and all I could see was Irene's like bright red hair yeah, yeah, standing yeah, yeah. over me. And she's like, you're all right. Just don't move. And yeah. what's weird is I've like had multiple different injuries in my life for mm-hmm. various of reasons. So I didn't panic. Um, I was pretty chill actually for the whole thing. I was able okay. to talk and 
really wasn't out of sorts too bad. Yeah. But, you know, I actually walked down to the road in Liming and, you know, got on a bus ride, like two and a half hour car ride to the closest hospital and like got some pretty gnarly Chinese stitches, some silk Chinese stitches on the top of my dome. Yeah. What was it like going through, kind of, you know, the, the medical? So scary. Yeah. I mean, you don't speak Chinese. I not, assume I can I can order fried rice and I can order fried rice with egg, and that is the extent of well, my. Unfortunately, major. that's probably not what yeah. you needed. Yeah, at the exactly. Time. Right. Uh, yeah. So I actually had a translator there that was climbing with us. Who's oh, a nice. good friend. Yeah, Pavel, and I mean lifesaver, absolute lifesaver. Mm-hmm. So uh, me and Jenny and Pavel loaded into this van, uh-huh. headed the you know two and a half hour car ride, whatever it was, to Lijiang, which is the closest town went to the hospital and it's like you know kind of dingy and dark and kind of scary you yeah. know and sat on a little wooden stool and showed the doctor my head he was like yep stitches we'll give you a cat scan to make sure your brain's not swelling up and uh, it'll be 200 dollars us that's it paid in cash stitched my head up that's incredible yeah even well, with insurance here you'd pay a lot more than two it was yeah it was insane like i paid in cash just like out of pocket and then took me to a back room they had everybody leave the room. They wouldn't let my translator there. Pinned my head down against a metal table and shaved the back of my head with like a straight razor and went to town. Like shot my head with an antibiotic shot and then just started stitching her up. Ugh. It was gnarly. It was bad. And how did everything work out? I mean, d- did you have any lingering issues? I had a really bad concussion. Yeah. So, that, to so be you just had like a bad headache and yeah, well, nausea? Yeah, it was crazy because my... Obviously, I had this really bad concussion. As soon as I got mm-hmm. out of the operating room where they did the stitches at, I uh, was having trouble like talking and walking. Okay. That's my, scary. <laughs> yeah, my brain was super messed up. So I'm like trying to call out to people and I can't talk. And uh-huh. it took me probably about 15 minutes to get like any type of speech back. So that was pretty gnarly. My head looked like hamburger for a little while. Oh. <laughs> um, the stitches were done in silk. And they were uh-huh. done super, super far apart. So yeah. like I literally looked like I had hamburger on top of my head for like a solid minute. And then I got back to the U.S. and I had to. Uh, Are you showing get me the a photo st- here? Stitches taken out. Pretty, pretty gnar. We're gonna have to get that photo and post it with the podcast episode <laughs> so everyone can check it out. Yeah. He's showing me a photo and it's pretty gnarly. Yeah, it was. It was a. Make you a little It was a queasy. pretty bad time. Oh. Yeah. So that's the day after. And how wait, so how long ago was that? Uh two and a half months, three months it's, now. So it's probably all scabbed over oh, man. and done no, now. It's like you can't even tell. Oh yeah, that's cleaned up. Yeah. They did they did they did a nice job. You say what you want about those Chinese doctors. My head looks great now. <laughs> yeah, it only cost you two hundred dollars. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and a, yeah, so I got a crazy story out of it. And that was the yeah. last day of climbing for me. I was leaving the next day. Whoa. Just classic. Well, at least you got everything done that yeah, you needed, you know? Exactly. You didn't waste the trip. Came back, went to a walk-in clinic, got the stitches removed, went Killer. and got my head checked out and did a couple things as far as like concussions go. Like they gave me tips and tricks to help like rehabilitate after the concussion. Uh-huh. And Petzl sent me a helmet the next morning. <sighs> Thanks, Adam. <laughs> All right. So if people want to check out your photography, obviously they can purchase the photo annual, which mm-hmm. is going on newsstands July 17th. But if they want to follow you on social media or check out your website, where would they do that? Of All Nations Media on Facebook and Instagram. And then, yeah, if you Google 
of All Nations Media or Levi Harrell. Okay. Uh, it should pop up. Anything that you see in climbing, you can search in the top right-hand bar for Levi Harrell, and it'll pop up with all of my articles as well that I've written for him. So definitely go check that out. Awesome. Well, thank you for your time, Levi. Thank you. Talk to you later. Yeah. That's the conclusion of the show. I want to thank Matt Salmon and Levi Harrell for stopping by. And I also want to thank our sponsor, Evolve, maker of The Rebel, the ultimate performance lifestyle shoe, available at REI and REI.com. The music was provided by Smallhouses at smallhouses.band. And if you've not done so already, please make sure to leave a rating and review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. All right, everyone. See you at the next base camp.